Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Unauthorized Disclosure Podcast. I'm Kevin Gastola, and unfortunately, Rania Kalik is still unable to join us this week. She's in a Middle Eastern country, which uh, I'm, I'm not going to identify for her safety. And uh, we wanted to still put out something for you to enjoy this week. And so we have a best of episode for you. We've taken clips from some of the most downloaded uh, and top episodes from our four seasons. And uh, as to begin, I will just note that the five episodes that are the most downloaded from our show, four of the five come from this season. And so it doesn't make much sense to us to go and uh, replay you segments from those episodes because many of you are familiar with those. Uh, So the, the top one was our first episode this season with Abby Martin. And then the second one is episode nine with Mark Ames. And then number four is the one we did with Max Blumenthal. And episode eight with Patrick Coburn is the number five episode. So maybe you're following along. What was number three? Uh, Well, number three was an episode we did around the uh, Iran nuclear deal. And uh, we interviewed uh, Nima Shirazi. Now, Nima has a blog called Why to Sleep in America. Uh, He's an analyst of U.S. foreign policy toward the Middle East. uh, And uh, he talked to us about the way uh, the world has um, impacted Iran, especially because of U.S. and Israeli policy over the past few decades. Uh, So uh, here's a clip from that interview. There's one thing I do want to ask you um, about in terms of the sanctions and in, in, in connection to the recent, you know, uh, with APAC losing recently, is it seems like as of, it seems like more recently, uh, it would, and this is just maybe my own analysis and maybe I'm wrong, but it seems like it, it would behoove the United States uh, empire, if you will, to actually be on better terms with Iran, uh, especially with, you know, the way things are in the Middle East right now. Um, and it seems like with you know, Israel constantly trying to beat the drums of war and pro-Israel lobby trying to constantly beat the drums for war and sanctions. It seems like that's something where the U.S. and Israel are maybe perhaps uh, don't see eye to eye. Um, so I'm, I guess I'm wondering, like, who benefits from this at this point? Like, who benefits from Iran, you know, from all the warmongering and fearmongering and the... Uh, and I guess treating Iran like a pariah, uh, because I don't see how it benefits. And I'm, you know, I'm totally against U.S. empire. Don't get me wrong, but I don't see how that benefits uh, U.S. empire at this point. No, it's 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 absolutely true. The the best thing that could happen, in a way, for for continued uh, U.S. access and and uh, privilege and hegemony in the Middle East is to be on really good terms with Iran. Oddly enough, that that would really help. It's it's certainly in in the United States government's. I mean, people as well, but government's best interest to uh, basically. End this stalemate with Iran. Uh, what, who it does benefit 
is Israel, because it completely takes the focus off of their own human rights violations and their own violations of international law and their own obligations. And it also really helps uh, the, the Arab dictatorships in, in the region that can continue uh, pretending that Iran is a, is a looming hegemonic expansionist threat to, to their own power. And, and as a result, continue uh, getting more and more weaponry to repress their own people from the United States uh, government. So, so we see a lot of these dictatorships uh, using this Iran threat, just like Israel does, uh, in order to get more, more military funding uh, and, you know, planes and tanks and training and all of, the, all of this stuff. We, we see that all the time. You know, Saudi Arabia uh, inks billion-dollar deals all the time with the United States. Um, and so I think, I think Israel and these Arab, these Arab states really, really benefit from this. Who doesn't benefit, again, is Iran and the United States. I mean, these are, these are two nations that actually have a lot in common um, uh, in terms of uh, the, the way that they kind of, uh, perhaps not, not governmentally at this point, but, but at least the, the populations of, of those two states um, could easily be on very, very, very good terms. Uh, it's also from a, from a um, frustratingly neoliberal uh, perspective would be an unbelievable market to open up to the rest of the world. Europe is chomping at the bit to get back into Iran mm. as it as it as it was, uh, you know, during the during the uh, dictatorship of the Shah before the revolution. And what we've seen actually in the past couple months are delegations after delegations from European states going to Iran and taking, you know, photo ops with the foreign minister, photo ops with uh, business partners, oil, oil executives. We, we see this, you know, France uh, and Italy and Sweden uh, have all recently sent delegations. Uh, even the European Parliament keeps I'm uh, sorry, the uh, European Union Parliament keeps, uh, you know, sending, sending delegations. This is something that Europe really wants to end. It wants to end having to go along with the United States uh, sanctions and, and, uh, and, and basically fear-mongering about Iran. They really want to end this because the market of Iran, of nearly 80 million people, um, buying products and traveling uh, really, really uh, is something that would be hugely beneficial to Europe. Um, and so I, I think we're, we're seeing we're seeing cracks in the in this 35-year um, wall of, of distrust and 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 of and of uh, you know uh, hostility, uh, which is all very very good. But again, we're going to keep seeing. Uh, this pressure put on put on uh, the United States Congress and and the uh, the the president as well uh, by Israel and its and its people in Washington. Um, so I actually have another question for you. That's sort of it's not really Iran related so much as it's uh, Israel lobby related, right? Uh, but uh, it's about I, I want to know your thoughts on um, on um, Abe Foxman leaving the ADL. <laughs> Um, you mean I, the supreme leader of the ADL? <laughs> I love that, the supreme leader of the ADL. Uh, and I'm just curious if you have any ideas for who should replace him. Um, 
Well, uh, let's see. Let's say uh, we could probably crowdsource imagine, this really well. I imagine that um, they're listening, by the way. I imagine the ADL. I mean, that's probably that's one of our. No, clearly. Audiences. And that, I mean, we can we can really help them out. We can do a, a lot of really good, a lot of good HR work for them for free. Um, you know, hey, look, Alan Dershowitz just retired from Harvard. Uh, he's certainly looking for something to do. That's that's growth. Yeah, he's still got so a couple. He's still that got a would couple, work. He's still got a couple years before eighty, right? Which is like how old uh, how old Abe Foxman is. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, they're I mean, they're they're really contemporaries in so many in so many horrible horrible ways. So, uh, you know, Dershowitz could 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 really work. Um, I'm sure uh, I'm I'm sure you guys can can come up with with uh, some other people. I think Dersh gets my vote. Yeah, well, you know, I, I'm a fan of I'm, I'm a fan of Dershowitz. Um, you know, I, I, I was thinking maybe Eli Lake. He seems like he's kind of he's young. He's young, right? But I mean, I, I think that some young blood would really you know spice things up over there. Indeed, yeah. I mean, I mean, I guess I, guess, I, I don't know if it would be a pay cut for like someone like 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 Bill Crystal to take that to oh. take on that. That role, I know. I know that. I know that Foxman made a lot of money, a lot of money in that in that in that spot. But uh, but I'm sure Bill's doing okay too. Maybe he could just do double duty. <laughs> you got any ideas over there, Kevin? I, I don't know. Uh, is, is it Ben Shapiro or <laughs> someone <laughs> like that? Is that the guy maybe, from BuzzFeed? How, how young do we want to go? We could maybe have like James Kerchak could take it up. Ah, yeah. Oh, I'm sure he'd love that. Or um, John, who's John? Is it Pador? How do you say his last name? Podhoritz. Yeah, you. yeah. I all can't. those. I mean, all those. Yeah, I, I, all I, those guys. I think would do it. Would do a bang up job. You know. Um, yeah, Ruben from 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 uh, from the Washington Post. He, he she could do it. You know, and now hey, they they could use a lady in there. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Let's you know change things Equal up, but not too much. It'll yeah. still be really, really horrible. Oh yeah, 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 totally. It'll still be super. I think she might be the most warmongriest of them all. So, so. yeah, <laughs> I, I I think we've we've really made some progress here today. All right, well, thank you. We've so, really helped them out. Thank you so much, Nima, for taking the time to speak with us, uh, and uh, we look forward to having you back on sometime soon to uh, talk more about indeed. The That was Nima Shirazi, and again, he blogs at Wyatt Asleep in America. We recorded that interview in February of 2014. They were negotiating the Iran nuclear deal, and President Donald Trump has yet to scuttle the deal. In fact, it, it still remains. What's been extraordinary is the pressure from within Congress, particularly the U.S. Senate, uh, with people like uh, Robert Menendez, who have been pushing for more sanctions to be applied or imposed on Iran. And so uh, the the zeal has come from both within the Democratic and Republican Party. And uh, at the same time that uh, there's been this fear that Donald Trump is going to do away with a, a deal that was put together through the work of uh, John Kerry at the State Department and uh, Barack Obama when he was president. The next episode that we would like to highlight, uh, the clip from this episode, 
comes from Douglas Williams. And uh, Douglas Williams is a writer for the Southlawn.org. Uh, he's a third generation organizer. And when we spoke to him, he was a doctoral student at Wayne State University in Detroit. And uh, we spoke to him about uh, Bernie Sanders. We spoke to him about Black Lives Matter. And we spoke to him about this critique of Sanders that he was not talking about race enough, that he was not doing enough to appeal to black people during the 2016 election. And so uh, you're going to find a theme for the next uh, and, and latter part of this best of episode, uh, because we're going to be exploring race, class, issues of identity politics, uh, the ways in which people on the left talk about organizing and activism. Uh, we've revisited and returned to this many times with our show over the past four seasons, and these episodes have performed and resonated with people on a very deep level. And so what you'll hear in this clip is uh, Douglas Williams talking about uh, both the issues of race and class, but also talking about uh, the particular uh, specific issue of white privilege. I don't know if, Kevin, you want to jump in about this, but I also take issue like, and I got this, but I got, I got in big trouble for saying this, but it seems to me that by, by, by Serge's, um, Serge's underlying, like, uh, like, a. uh, uh organizing structure of staying in your white community, whatever that means. I'm not really sure what having a white community means, uh, but staying in your neighborhood, your mostly white neighborhood and just organizing among white people um, to me, seems like you're putting your, you know, they're advancing an organizing strategy of segregated organizing. Um, and, you know, that's I got dragged for using those two words, um, but, that, but that's what it is. So, so let me, let me say it. <laughs> Surge's strategy is a form of segregated organizing. And, my, you know, I talk about my grandmother a lot, right? But for those who don't know, my grandmother organized during the Civil Rights Movement, led the fight to integrate the first uh, public school in our hometown. And that is the photo that I have in my living room is of, my father as a child and my grandmother and other local black leaders standing in front of that first, um, that first integrated public school in our hometown. My grandmother did not put her life and limb on the line for us to be advancing a strategy of segregated organizing 50 years later. I mean, it's just, that is embarrassing. It is really embarrassing and we have to, we, coming together on things like this is hard, right? People come at it from different life experiences. People say stupid shit, right? That's part and parcel of organizing, right? Is that you have to deal with people who are not necessarily malevolent so much as they might be stupid or ignorant. Or like not right? have the right language that you want them to use. But um, but when when you're organizing, when you're not organizing around issues, but rather an identity, right? Mm-hmm. You know, look, I went on. I, I, I would go knock on doors as a political organizer for the Democratic Party, 
right back when I was actually a Democrat. Um, and people would say, you know, Democrats are, are baby killers. They're this or that or whatever. And, you know, like, it, 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 it was hard to hear that stuff sometimes, but I did not take it personally that this person would have said this to any Democrat that came to their door, right? But what we have with a with a organizing strategy based solely around identity is that what happens when you come to a door where someone says all lives matter, right? You're going to take that as a personal attack, right? Right, Because you're organizing around something that is indigenous and personal to you, right? Mm-hmm. And it's not, it makes for really ineffective organizing, And it makes for just these large pockets of misunderstandings and missed opportunities for education. Because the first job of any organizer is to educate. And I feel like we are missing out on a lot of opportunities for that when we adopt this strategy of white people organize your communities and black people organize their communities. Black lives already matter to black people. (laughs) <laughs> right? Yeah. So my guess is that we need to talk to white folks <laughs> in order to get black lives to matter to them too, right? Well, and it, and like, so which white folks are we talking about? That's another thing that I, I want to ask you about is, um, you know, I have a friend who grew up in a, grew up in a trailer park. He's white, but he grew up in a trailer park. Um, and so when people shout at him that he's got some sort of white privilege, like, you know, I, I'm confused as to, like, what white, what privilege he grew up with in a trailer park um, in the setting that he grew up in. Like, he grew up around a lot of racist people because poor white people in settings like that, like, you know, racism tends to, you know, be, you know, more open, I guess. I'm not sure, like, how else to put it, but um, or more explicit. Well, like in but, Appalachia, it's the worst because. Well, I, right. Being now, right. It's even worse there. It's like, thir- it's like, you know. Like, it's like a, you're in a developing country. Um, but the point is, like, I, you know, there's always also this, like, this this rhetoric about privilege. And, you know, I used to be on the opposite end of what I'm about to say here. Um, I did. I used to be on the opposite end. I used to be more, like, pro-ID politics on this. But, you know, after, when you really, like, when you really examine how things function in this country, it seems like when we're talking about privilege, what we're really talking about isn't privilege. We're talking about basic rights. So, like, is it a privilege to not be shot by the police? Or is that a right that you shouldn't be shot by the police? You know what I mean? Like, is it a privilege that you have access to education better access to education or that you have better access to healthcare or those things that should be rights. Um, so I kind of like question this whole privilege culture making, you know, this, like the way that this is this privilege language has taken over and, and what that means and how it's actually masking the fact that like, there are like the majority of people, poor people in this country are white. Right. And it's like, you know, I, I just, I don't, you know, I don't know. Like, I don't know what kind of privilege you're growing up with if you're white and growing up in a trailer park. I just don't. I don't understand that. Well, the thing about privilege is that privilege is, privilege theory is useful at, at only a most basic, fundamental level sort of way of understanding how 
um, like power dynamics in our society, right? So if your friend grows up in a trailer park, um, he is he 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 would have certain privileges over a black person who grew up in a right. in, a, in a housing project, right? And it's supposed to be sort of a um, comparative analysis between people of the same class and rung in life, right? But the problem is that it relies on a couple of things. A, it relies on white people having a common experience and black people having a common experience, right? Which is like part and parcel the definition of racial essentialism, right? <laughs> like... It was funny during the whole Rachel Dolezal thing. You know, I hate to be bringing this up <laughs> on, on, on your on your radio program or your podcast. But during the Rachel Dolezal thing, uh, Turing Neblet, who, as you know, is on the um, the cycle on MSNBC, mm. he 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 said that Rachel Dolezal did not experience that thing that we all experience as black people, and that is racism. So that's hilarious. That's a hilarious assertion for a few reasons. One, uh, given that Toure basically wrote a book talking about the fluidity of identities in uh, Who's Afraid of Post-Blackness, it was really weird to see him, of all people, making these sort of uh, statements. The second thing is that racism affects people differently based on, surprise, surprise, class, right? (laughs) Because I got to say that racism is going to affect Douglas Williams differently than it will affect Malia Obama. Right? So it, it was funny to see that sort of flattening of the black experience. And three, the 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 assumption that racial dolezal did not experience racism is based on something that's kind of crazy when you think about it, right? And that is that only black people thought that Rachel Dolezal was black, right? Right. That she did not, that she only lived as a black person around black people. And that white people were in on, were in on the conspiracy, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, white people weren't racist to Rachel Dolezal because unlike, you know, those ignorant black folks, apparently they knew that she, that, that she was white. That's a stretch. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably, considering she was on a civilian review board for the Spokane Police Department and chair of the Spokane County NAACP, it is a good chance there are a lot of white folks who also thought she was black. So she would have been able to experience the same sort of racism and discrimination that everyday black folks experience who 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 are who were born that right Mm -hmm. and 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 so again it's like race it's like race is simultaneously fluid 
when people want it to be fluid and 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 it is immutable when people want it to be immutable right right and those seem like two extremely conflicting concepts that 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 that, that it would make sense to sort of clarify is race a social construction or is it not if race is, is a is a solely social construction, then Rachel Dolezal, Andrea Smith, or any of these people can be whatever the hell they want to be, <laughs> right? And, and, and really, why does any of this matter, right? Like we're talking about this in the in the midst of the McKinney, yeah, the Pulse, party right? Yeah, Eddie Gray, and all this stuff. And we're all speculating on the evilness of this one individual, but then that's identity politics and its modern conception, right? Is that it takes all of these things and it projects them onto individuals as ciphers, right? And it's, I mean, that whole that whole thing was just absolutely embarrassing. Um, <laughs> that, 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 I mean, that that's all I can say. It was just. Embarrassing beyond belief. That was Douglas Williams of the Southlawn.org. And the acronym mentioned there, SURGE, S-U-R-J, that stands for uh, Showing Up for Racial Justice. And this is a network that proclaims to be organizing white people for racial justice. And uh, back last year, we had some very definite and uh, resolute ideas about uh, what this would mean. And as you heard, the term segregated organizing, uh, definitely something uh, contentious. Uh, People were upset about our critique, uh, but you know, nonetheless, uh, it was made with an eye and uh, interest in multiracial organization and in you know true and actual intersectional intersectional organizing against all systems that are involved in oppression. And so, another episode that we posted. Uh, This one was also uh, an episode that went up uh, last year. We put this up in February of 2016, and it it paid very close attention to the language of intersectionality, which Hillary Clinton was appropriating for her campaign. And she was talking about racism, and she was saying ludicrous and silly things like, if we broke up the big banks tomorrow... Would that end racism? Would that end sexism as a as a way to uh, undercut this interest in not only Bernie Sanders' campaign but also just in general uh, this this focus on the big banks and their power, uh, the power of corporations uh, in this interest in class issues, which she as a she as a Democrat did not want to have to take any positions on, and we still have this running through the Democratic Party. We still have them very committed to this uh, 
mobilizing suburban voters, focusing on the suburban voters, going after these uh, upper class, uh, moderate conservatives, appealing to them, trying to point out that Donald Trump is a vulgar human being and and transform them into people who might uh, be willing to vote for them in elections. It's not working. It's been a failure. Uh, And so Vivek's interview, which we're going to play here, uh, he is a a sociology professor at New York University. He's the author of Postcolonial Theory and the Specter of Capital. Um, we, we spent some time on this episode, which you can find, talking about neoliberalism and the Democratic Party. Uh, we talked uh, – at first we, we, we had him establish some of his work. We talked about the post-colonial theory. Uh, we skip over that in this best of. The part that I want to particularly highlight is his conversation um, uh, that directly addressed the language that Hillary Clinton was deploying because, again – it's still being used. It's still something that her supporters, uh, it's still something that establishment Democrats are using and particularly driving it uh, into any sort of opposition to Democrats that comes from the Sanders wing, that comes from people who supported Bernie Sanders, that comes from organizing or any sort of left-wing organizing that is challenging the way in which the Democrats are, are, are claiming to put up opposition to Donald Trump. You know, you've got someone like Hillary Clinton, right, who's running for the Democratic um, nomination. And this is somebody who has been, in, you know, involved in um, in pushing policies that have been detrimental to poor people, particularly uh, poor people of color. And right now she's really remaking herself into a social justice warrior um, who's got this, like, who's anti-racist and has always been anti-racist. And she's doing it um, by using the language, like, I mean, she usually literally used the word intersectionality. Like, she's using the language, she's talking yeah. about white people, I, I, white people need to check their privilege. Some, uh, she must have hired some grad students. Right. <laughs> but, the, but it's really, I mean, and then on the other end, you've got someone like Bernie Sanders who's talking, I mean, he's not, you know, obviously he's not like a, a hardcore, like, Marxist. He's not a hardcore socialist, but he's talking, he's really, he's, he's popularizing ideas about the economy, about redistribution that haven't been popularized on this level, you know, on this massive of a platform in a really long time. And it just, it's, it's fascinating to me to watch that, um, the reaction to him and the way to like sort of push people away from what he's saying is to call him a single issue candidate and to use this language coming from, you know, the radical academic left, if you, you know, whatever you want to call it. So like how, you know, I guess, what are your thoughts on that? Like watching this play out? Um, well, it, it's a, a, a deeply dishonest, of course. The whole, the the entire reaction to Bernie has been a, a bait and switch kind of ploy by Hillary, and it's not surprising. What is interesting is, as you say, that she is drawing on this uh, aspect of current intellectual and political culture to justify this kind of uh, very dishonest move that she's making. What she's drawing on is that basically what's happened in the past 20 years is what it means to be left-wing or radical has been very successfully redefined by the academy, by professors and by grad students. And the way it's been redefined is that starting with a correct premise, which is that class, people's economic condition doesn't isn't responsible for everything awful that's happening to them in their lives. There's also 
the uh, purely uh, racialized oppressions that they face and gendered oppressions that they face. And that, that's absolutely true. Starting with that correct premise, it leads to the, the deeply incorrect conclusion that therefore, if you talk about people's economic conditions, you are not addressing the uh, core and most important aspects and liabilities of their lives. Now, <laughs> if you're an African-American in this country, it's absolutely true that you face all kinds of discrimination. It's absolutely true that you have a much higher uh, uh, likelihood of being incarcerated than a white person in the same class as you. That's, al- that's absolutely true. But how do you expect to address the real plight of African-Americans in this country around their everyday lives without a jobs program, without universal health care, without decent and universal public education? To think that these are matters that are, by virtue of being economic, not relevant for people of color, it's not just wrong. It is fantastically dishonest. Now, yeah. oh, the, the reason Hillary is able to get away with this is that the so-called left, and I don't really call it the left anymore. I don't know what to call it because <laughs> it's a diseased formation. The so-called left intelligentsia has succeeded in equating the word class with white guys. Mm. And this is a, we should look at this as an achievement, because it's never happened on the left before. It was always understood amongst the more savvy, radical activists that even though people's economic conditions don't explain all the liabilities they face, addressing the oppressions that men and women who are poor are facing, that black men and women are facing who are poor, addressing those without addressing their economic conditions is a uh, elite strategy to keep off the table the real concerns of poor working and women, working class black men and women. It's always understood. Now it's taken to be the emblem of what it means to be radical. And that's just an, a sign that the middle class and the upper classes have taken over the discourse of the left, whether they're professors, whether they work in nonprofits, or whether they're these uh, talking heads for think tanks. It's the same phenomenon, which is the middle class is getting to define what it means to be radical. I mean, that's a that's a really great point. And I think it also, um, you know, the, the fact there also does seem to be the strain and what you just said would explain why the strain of just hatred and not I mean, just like looking down on um, the white working class and poor class you, you um, and even blaming them for racism. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Go ahead. A lot of this um, race talk is really a search for an acceptable way to express your disdain for poor people. Mm-hmm. You just can't express it for poor black people because then it becomes racist. And in, in polite circles, racism is not acceptable. And that's a great thing. It shouldn't be, of course. Right. But it is acceptable to talk about poor white trash or hillbillies or rednecks. All these are expressions you can continue to use. And uh, it, people use it with alacrity not because they have a hatred for white racists, but there's a general disdain for poor white people. Mm -hmm. And they're seen as being born into racism the way they're born into their skin. This is, again, an achievement (laughs) of a a very, I think, uh, backward and quite uh, conservative uh, intelligentsia now. Later in the episode, I read this quote from Hillary Clinton to Vivek. 
obviously I'd caveat this by saying that there's a level of dishonesty or perhaps disingenuousness or political opportunism behind this, but at the same time it has force. No way. It has force and meaning because a lot of people are responding to it. So something she said in Harlem, and I wanted to get your reaction, Vivek, is ending systemic racism requires contributions from all of us, especially those of us who haven't experienced it ourselves. White Americans need to do a better job of listening when African Americans talk about the seen and unseen barriers that you face every day. We need to recognize our privilege and practice humility rather than assume that our experiences are everyone's experiences. And I just wanted to kind of like have you apply your analysis to this and how this is uh, like what this does to the dominant political culture to think like that. Um, well, it's a banality. It's of course true. It's, it's just saying you should be a decent person. That's all it's saying. Uh, it's true when it comes to race. It's true when it comes to gender, any oppression, which is dominant groups need to, of course, be open and sensitive to what other groups are saying. The question is, is this why racism persists? Because people are insensitive? Because white people haven't purged their souls of all these impurities? Because they haven't taken racial sensitivity seminars? <laughs> is this the reason? The main thing, if you want to uh, address racism, is not to get white people to think differently, or as one of those Black Lives Matter people said to Hillary, to seek the truth in their heart. Oh, God. The, the, the way you address it is actually quite simple. Uh, you empower black people. You empower the people who are on the receiving end of the oppressions, and you make them alert, uh, alert them to the fact that... Um, while, while a section of the dominant group will, of course, be open to persuasion, and that's a very important fact, because even in the civil, the civil rights movement wouldn't have succeeded unless a big chunk of white America came over to its side, which it did. But the reason it came over to its side isn't because it took it went it saw Dr. Phil reruns and looked into its heart. The reason was it was inspired by the organization and material struggles that black people undertook. Now, if that's the case. And of course, one ad- agrees that dominant groups have to be open and honest and sensitive and all that. But the first step towards actually addressing racism is to address the structural causes of it and to empower the people who have the most to benefit from its eradication, which is black people. This thing that she's doing, this little trope, it was meant to appeal to the the political managers and the uh, intelligentsia and the middle class. Uh, which is by showing racism to be a matter of attitude and a matter of perception rather than of material interests. And the Democratic Party just can't, they can't address that. That's why it's, a, in my view, an unreformable party. Which, to, um, follow, which was to follow up here, uh, there's this whole thing in activism currently where you go before a elite figure or, or, or a, a politician like Hillary and you demand that they apologize for systemic oppression or injustice. And I don't gather, I mean, I'd like your reaction to this because I don't gather that in any place of the world, this has ever been an effective means to organizing against power. It's not only not been effective, it's never been thought of as politics because it isn't. It's not, it, it's theater. And now, theater has its place in a political movement. So if you are organizing, then going up and shaming a politician, it, it has a certain role to play. The thing about today's culture, though, is these people think it is politics. Uh, this incredibly, mor- and it's not just the moralism. 
these individual acts are also they're kind of photo ops. It's it's part of this me activism. Uh, me is unhappy. Me wants more. Me wants to be noticed. Me wants to be coddled. Uh, and it's not surprising that a lot of it comes out of the student left and the nonprofit left, because this is a certain stratum of society in which the difference between self-reflection and narcissism is very hard uh, to find. Uh, it's not well understood for these people. So one doesn't dismiss it altogether. But it goes back, again, to the fundamental point that every social movement and every political leader of whatever color and whatever creed has known for the last hundred years, which is you win things by organizing, by mass organizing, not by shaming, not by embarrassing, not by calling attention to uh, people's moral motivations, but by imposing real costs through uh, real struggles. Um, I, you know, I, I think once, if it turns out that people in uh, uh, in this country do start organizing, I think this stuff will really kind of kind of fall by the wayside. Um, right now, it, it's uh, one of the many expressions of the profound depoliticization of the culture. That was Vivek Chaber, and we're very happy to have him when we interviewed him that episode went very far and wide it resonated with people and our conversation in there began with the way that people talk about intersectionality it towards the end we played a clip from the episode where he talked about tactics and we conclude this best of uh, edition of the unauthorized disclosure podcast with this clip from uh, a very popular interview we did with donna merck who is an associate professor at Rutgers University, and and she's recently authored uh, the book Asada Taught Me, State Violence, Mass Incarceration, and the Movement for Black Lives. And uh, what we talk about here is um, she's actually responding to a quote from a, a Black Lives Matter organizer who was making a statement about their attitudes towards uh, uh, voting or participating in the 2016 election. And uh, we're uh, choosing to remain uh, disengaged from uh, the the whole process. And uh, Donna makes this statement about uh, how people who are organizing strategically should be making claims of the state. So I'm 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 specifically reacting, and I and I mean this with the most respect to the people involved who are doing this, but I'm, I'm specifically reacting to something that was said by Professor Melina Abdullah on Democracy Now! And, and what she said was, when we think about what democracy is, democracy being ruled by the people, we need to really kind of redefine what that means and break away from this notion that the only way of being democratic is engaging in electoral politics. I actually don't disagree okay. with that statement. But then she says, and we're not telling people not to vote, we're simply not endorsing any presidential candidate recognizing that where we want to put our time and energy is in the development of people to act in their own interests and on their own behalf. And so we are pushing the real revolution. And, and I, I guess in reading this, I sort of have a difficult time with it because in every single Bernie Sanders speech, he makes the, he puts a lot of emphasis on this fact that you 
have to be with me after the election. I need these social movements in order to get these policies done. And what is the question he keeps getting? How are you going to get any of these fantasy proposals through the Congress? Well, he keeps saying, well, I'm going to need people out and I'm going to need you to be out there doing struggling. I'm going to have to have people, you know, if, if we want single-payer health care, just take that for example, then you're going to have to have people who are engaged in some kind of activism and, and sort of uh, building up this whole, you know, you have to shift the consensus, basically. Yeah. Well, I mean, as you said, the rationale for why they're, uh, the anxiety about being folded into the Democratic Party um, I, there are historical precedents for it, I'll put it that way. My own view of this is that it is very important to make claims on the state. You know, the core issue that we face, and neoliberalism is a term that some academics are uncomfortable with it because it's so broad. Um, but if you think about it, the way I understand the neoliberal era is post-New Deal, and I'm talking about inside the United States. Because in the global south, it, it, has a, it has a different structure, but they're, of course, related to each other with structural adjustment programs and the use of IMF and lending practices of these you know, international financial uh, institutions. But inside the United States, the way that I understand the neoliberal era is that we are seeing a retreat from the New Deal welfare state. So the discussion of the privatization of Social Security, the transformation under the Reagan administration from pensions, which are regulated, to 401ks, which was a huge gift to Wall Street by people investing their essentially retirement, you know, retirement savings in Wall Street. So one of the biggest issues that we're facing is the economic, um, how do I put this, the, the estate in which we're having a great difficulty as Americans, North Americans, U.S. citizens, in making claims on the state and saying the state should do this for us. The state should provide us with, um, uh, it should it should protect us from um, uh, lending practices that make it that make us lose our homes. It should provide our children with well-funded public education that will allow them to essentially realize themselves. And also that the state cannot simply incarcerate and police and kill and fight wars. We want a state that does things for the people, not just a warfare state. And I think making claims on the state is absolutely crucial. We're in the country that has the largest defense apparatus in the world. We have the biggest police state that, and I just use that as a very simple technical term, talking about the numbers of police and the scale of the state apparatus, really in the world and arguably in world history. So to repudiate the state and say, we're no longer going to engage with the state, I think it's impossible to have a, a, a political revolution without engaging the state. Now, that, uh, as I said earlier, that doesn't mean get your Democratic Party, you know, <laughs> card and stop doing anything else. <laughs> you know, that's idiocy. But do we need to make claims on the state? Absolutely. How are you going to fight state violence without making claims on the state? Because we are not able, I mean, the alternate is what, to build an army? Right. I mean, the, and this form of protest where you simply stand outside and protest with a sign, this will never change state policy. Right. 
you know, and to look at, and I think it's a misrepresentation of the black radical movement. The Panthers, as I have said, they supported multiple forms of politics, including carrying um, loaded unconcealed weapons, which was legal in 1966, to say in a very Weberian way, the state does not possess the single legitimate means of force. So this is an actual use of armed self-defense, much more radical stance than what we're seeing today. But those same people, six years later, run a mayoral campaign because they're trying to figure out how to implement state redistribution, how to restructure the police. So I think that not simply abdicating an engagement with the state reinforces this period of neoliberal state retrenchment. And I think for me, us engaging the state in every way, including supporting candidates that are trying to provide concrete proposals to stop police violence and stop the mechanisms of mass incarceration, as well as uh, repudiate the constant imperial wars we're involved in, is just crucial. I don't know how else to fight the militarization of police, except to have a portion of the movement directly engage with how we change these practices. That does it for our best of show. Uh, that last clip was from Donna Merck. Uh, her book, Asada Taught Me, will be out in October, and uh, it should be excellent. I uh, want to thank everyone who continues to support the show every single week, uh, and uh, especially the people who are patrons. Uh, it, also, if you can't donate, one of the ways that you can support the show is to share it with your friends and family. And uh, this, in some ways, can be just as important to us as the people who are able to give a few dollars every month. If you can share it around on Twitter or put it up on Facebook pages, um, or if you have uh, people you share news stories with over email, uh, however you uh, share uh, content with your friends and family. If you're sh- if you're sharing this show, that's tremendously helpful, and it, it allows us to grow our show. And uh, we want to make sure that people are hearing what we do. Uh, so, uh, thank you again for all of your support, and we'll be back soon with another episode of the Unauthorized Disclosure Podcast. <laughs>